Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Yeah, we'll just edit or whatever. <laughs> so, Mikhail, we're we're not that organized. This is very standard for us. We're this this is this is basically how this whole thing goes. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm just not sure if it's already started yet. Yes, or? it started. Oh, it it's definitely started. Now, how much of this will make it into the show is... Uh, He's already picked up on one of our classic bits. Is this or is this the show? Are we, we going to edit this out? Are we on yet? So I, sh- should we start out with uh, you teaching the world how to pronounce your name? I mean, us Americans, we all think that it's just Michael. So <laughs> I'm, I'm generally fine with Michael or whatever is your local version of that name. Just every language seems to have one. Uh, but the original would be Michal. Michal. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I get it at least partially right. <laughs> 60th time is the charm. <laughs> How's the conference going? First of all, I mean, well, before we even get to that, thank you so much for joining us and like recording this with us already. Oh, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm I, very happy I, to talk with you. Oh, well, thanks for coming. I, I already wonder when you sleep. It seems like no matter what time of day there's a Twitter message that goes out, you respond to it. So <laughs> <laughs> you and Sasha, I don't think Sasha ever sleeps either. Yeah, it's it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your timing was great yesterday, Amos. You like uh, you slacked me saying you have to uh, meet Miha. And I was like, oh, you're standing right next to me. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> but the conference is good. It's going really well. Um, the talks have been really good. Anything that's like that's like stood out to you or caught your interest so far? Uh, so I attended a talk about uh, open census, uh, which was quite interesting, which is this new approach to, to tracing across multiple microservices or multiple services mm-hmm. that you connect. Uh, so this seemed very interesting as a way to, to integrate it deeper in, in the language. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see some more coming out about that because I know Ben uh, Ben Marks has been really interested in that, and so we've been talking about doing more of that at Bleacher Report. So yeah, I'm that's exciting to know that there's going to be a there's a talk out there <laughs> that I can watch soon. How how quick are are these normally out? I know some conferences are like day of, but I think Erlang Solutions is usually pretty quick publishing them. Yeah, I think so. Usually, usually pretty quick. And you spoke to Dave Mihal, right? Yes, I spoke today. What, uh, what did you talk about today? I that talked config? about... No. <laughs> <laughs> That's still before us, <laughs> I assume. <laughs> uh, I talked about optimizing. Uh, the title of the talk was Optimizing for the Beam. Uh, so it was basically lessons learned from the things I did, let's say, last year. Of building the JSON library and also contributing some optimizations to Elixir and to Erlang uh, and things like that. So if there's like one takeaway that you could give somebody over audio about optimizing for the beam, what, what, would, you, what would you say? Well, I would say measure first. <laughs> That's like, think optimizing blindly. It's very hard and you usually get it wrong. So and this also was part of the talk. And I talked to, talked to a little bit about tools you can use for monitoring and then also for uh, uh, measurement of the performance and, and things like that. 
which I think is very important before you actually start doing anything, like recognize where your problems are and set some goals, what you want to achieve. Yeah, you have to you have to sort of start with a hypothesis, right? You have to kind of call your shot a little bit or else you're, you're just flailing around blindly <laughs> trying to find what the problem is. Yeah, exactly. Are there any particular tools for the folks listening that you would recommend um, that you were talking about? Uh, so for the simplest, thing, simplest things, I'd say Observer is a very useful tool. Uh, and there's also like the, the CLI version, the Observer CLI, which you can use running the shell directly. And then there's a web-based one. So it works in different setups and you can run it in production just fine. Then for the second step, once you have some information about the system, the second step would be uh, profiling. And then there are the three profilers that are built into Erlang, which are eProf, cprof, and fprof, I think. And they all have mixed tasks wrapping them, uh, which are pretty nice to use, I think. It seems to me like one of your uh, biggest contributions, or at least visible contributions to the to the ecosystem, is going in and fixing libraries and optimizing stuff. And like, that's that's a, like so much of when I'm lurking in IRC. It's like you're talking about ways of oh, we should do this or that, or you know, here's ways to do to to optimize these different situations. And I know like that was a part of um, with Jason with like the with the Jason library that y'all worked on. When you're approaching those sorts of problems, do you just have an intuition? about this stuff because you've done it enough now or do you you know do you go look at the code or you do you you know how do you start to formulate that hypothesis like well I, i'd say those things happen mostly accidentally so just i'm exploring some codes that we use like at work or somewhere or in elixir and i look at some library and realize like that's not how i would do it right let's let's try let's let's try finding out which way would be better, right? If it's maybe could be faster or maybe something like that. Yeah, and, and after some time, right, of doing this enough times, you get an intuition what things are common but are not the best for performance, for example. So one of, one of the optimizations I contributed, something similar to a lot of projects, was handling binaries. So imagine a situation where you're transforming one binary to another. It's like some string processing, right? And there's often a situation when large parts of the binary are not actually changed, right? So an example is HTML escaping, right? Most of the, the data is actually not touched at all. So instead of copying everything byte by byte until you find those that you need to escape and then do something, uh, what is better to do instead is to count how many bytes you have of those like clean bytes that you don't need to change then create a sub binary from that using for example binary part function uh, and then build like an io list of that right instead of one binary with copying everything right because uh, io lists are actually going to be optimized at that point because because they let you do things like swap out just pieces of the of of the of the list right Yes, exactly. Then, like for most of it, like you have those sub binaries that still refer to the original data, right? So you haven't copied them. So it's more memory efficient. And mm. also in many cases, you actually can 
then roll with those IO lists, right? You don't need to concatenate them. So HTML escaping is a great example, right? Because then you push it to the sockets and it can handle IO lists just fine. This is like core part of JSON as well. So if you are parsing strings, for example, from JSON, I have escapes as well. Like most parts are not escaped. Uh, and something similar is, for example, uh, in Elixir when you use integer parse, right? Mm -hmm. There's even better because you just have to count how many digits you have, right? Then extract the digits and use the Erlang's uh, binary to integer function, which is like pretty fast because it's implemented in C. Right. It feels it feels like so much of um, so much of optimizing for some of this stuff is figuring out how to get down to the the pieces of Erlang that uh, that break all the rules. Like, yeah. <laughs> like there's so many little like escape hatches of things that are, are are special cased to make them fast in Erlang, and it feels like so much of it is trying to figure out how to how to work your way back down to that level <laughs> so you can take advantage of it. Yeah, I think I think that's true. So do you get into, I, it sounds like a lot of this is algorithm design too, like deciding how to deal with functional data structures and being able to minimize that copy aspect of, of functional programming. So what have you used yourself to like learn more about functional programming and data structures or is it just hard one experience? So I'll admit it, but I'm not really a like programming books person. I rarely read programming books, uh, but I do read a lot of articles and papers as well. Uh, probably everybody knows the thing when you go on Wikipedia looking for something and then you end up half an hour later looking at something completely else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's how I do it mostly. And not only with Wikipedia, but with some like blog posts and like papers and things like that. Mm -hmm. Cl click all the links till they're all a different color. That's kind of kind of my go-to. I've been trying to read some books lately, but th those are those are slow going for me. Um, but you you said papers, so uh, I know Jose has talked recently about John Hughes driven development, but um, so I know those papers have been pretty influential. Uh, what is uh, an influential paper for you? Maybe one of your favorites. I'm not sure I have ones, but what I recently, for example, was exploring the different papers around the HAMT data structure, mm. so the way the Erlang maps work, mm -hmm. like Erlang maps and like closure maps and vectors and sets and all of that. So there are a couple of papers, quite interesting, and then they they also give you ideas, like how could you do things in the functional environment like immutable data types when mm -hmm. you encounter some other problems, right? Not exactly this one. Because you can reuse some parts of the techniques that they use. The the hash array map try stuff is is really, really fascinating. And I think it's it's so interesting. Like the original Bagwell papers, like the I ideal hash tree, I think is the name of the of that one. It shows how to do this stuff, but it, it I don't or if I remember correctly, they weren't they weren't pure or they weren't they weren't. They didn't support immutable data structures, um, and it was Rich Hickey who like figured out how to do that and then like put it into an immutable context. But he didn't like write anything about it. He just did it, and like that was like the underlying like closure data structures were all based on this these ideas. And then since then, 
everybody's had to just go look at how those data structures were made and then rip them out and use them in their other languages because they're they're so good uh it's just like such a such a good way of doing uh things so go go read data structures built into programming languages (laughs) ideal way to learn that's what i'm understanding exactly and Michal and I were talking a little bit yesterday. Um, I know we'll eventually get to this, but the discussion that we were all having last week about config things. <laughs> the elephants in the room. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was just going to avoid talking about it <laughs> the whole time. Wait, that's why we invited him on the show, I thought. I know. Yeah. Among other reasons. I thought that would be just a really hilarious troll, though. Is is like we like, get him on the show for this, and then just okay. don't talk about it at all. We could we could title it "Config Part 2 and then never. <laughs> well, so let's talk about config, right? Um, I think you know Twitter is what what Twitter is, and I'm not actually convinced that we we all disagree that much about about certain things. So it would be good to get that extra nuance and context uh, from the side of people who, who experience a whole different set of problems than we do. So I think it would be useful to f- maybe say first, like state what I think the problem with the way current, the way currently it is done is, right? To mm-hmm. have some like, base for it. So I think that in general, I would say like most libraries abuse application N or config. Uh, so, for example, you have like an API client or something like that. It shouldn't use application con- application end. Right? It should just accept like for the API keys, for example, as arguments. Like that's it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we all agree on that. Yeah, yeah. I think moving on. Check. I don't think <laughs> yeah. at this point. I don't think anyone in the community disagrees with that. I think the entire community agrees with that point. And so, but the problem is that we have a lot of libraries that do that, right? And you have to deal with them somehow. And the way mixed config works is like mostly as a compile time thing. In the case where you use like mixed run, it becomes a runtime thing as well, which mm-hmm. I think is, is the big problem, right? That it is those both things at once. So I'm personally, uh, I think like we should go for splitting runtime and compile time config. Uh, Jose does not agree with me in here. Uh, so yeah, like we, we're not a unified front. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so that we, I think we joked about it um, and I joked about it on Twitter as well. It, it was like, if you, the quickest way to solve the problem is just to make, it's just to stop running the mixed config scripts at boot. And then the whole problem just goes away because, or the problem doesn't go away, but it, but it makes the problem obvious. Which, but it's that's like that's not a reasonable solution either. Yeah, so I think one of the primary principles we want from a solution, if we arrive at something, is not to punish library users, right? Mm-hmm. To try to push library authors in the right direction, but like not trying to make it as easy as possible for the users, even if the library is like not doing the right thing, because there are so much more users at libraries than authors. Mm-hmm. So we're inconveniencing more people if we impose some strict rules that basically everybody must follow now. It's it's too late too late in the game to just throw in a really hard rule. Well, I mean, it, it's like as silly as you know a, a giant breaking change like not running mix on boot would be. You know, I mean that 
it's such a breaking change that you're talking about Elixir 2 at that point. That's the kind of, that's the realm that you're entering into when you do that. So I, I don't, I understand the, the desire to not want to want to break any of that stuff. That makes, that makes sense. So, so I have a, this is, this question is not, is not as leading as, um, as I mean it to be. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. so, I mean, mixed config has behaved this way for a long time. And for the most part, I think we've all figured out how to work around it. Either you just don't use a release, which I think a lot of people do. Um, I think a lot of people just don't use releases partially because of this and just because it's a little easier to run with mix. Um, and for those of us who have been using releases, we've just figured out ways around the problem at this point. So I'm curious to know um, what the driving influence uh, of this is. like why do why is this why is this a thing we're fixing now so to speak and and I don't mean that to be as like critical as it sounds I'm just I'm, oh, I'm yeah. legitimately curious. I think that's a completely valid question. So one thing is I think that you have a new person coming to the community and they want to run their Phoenix app on Heroku. Mm -hmm. right? And the thing you have to do at Heroku is allocate port dynamically and database URL dynamically. Mm -hmm. and then they go to look at some things, documentation and blog posts, and some say use system tuples, some say use replace OS vars, mm -hmm. some say use init callback, some say use system get and directly in config scripts. And it's like, it's confusing, right? Uh, so I say that's one reason, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe arrive at one solution that we can recommend, right? It could be like the, I don't know how to say it, but like the, the way to do it. And I'm not sure we can arrive at something like that, but it would be like ideal. Uh, and so that's one of it. And the other part is we figured out how to do this with reading from system environment. But what if you want to read from ETCD? or vault or I don't know, even like a file with JSON, <laughs> right? It's, right? it's not very easy with a file with JSON because you don't have the JSON library when you run the config scripts and right. then things like that, right? We, we, part, we, we learned to manage the, the problem, uh, but this does not mean the problem does not exist, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I ended up talking to, to Jose on IRC uh, after we recorded the last uh, the last episode, and and he broke it down really really nicely. I think into three kind of distinct categories of problems, and the first is you have the compilation configuration stuff, um, and th these are things like uh, I mean I know I think you you've alluded to this before too. So this this is going to change in Ecto three, but right now Ecto needs to know what adapter you're using at compile time. Um, so that it can bake in like the correct code and that kind of stuff. And there's there's other use cases for that, like like logger, like the logger right now. Um, it, it uses some of the values in mixconfig at compile time in order to purge logs and stuff like that. There's the second pillar or tier of this, which is bootstrapping, as as he kind of called it. Which is, I'm going to get part of this wrong, but you know it. It, it, as far as I'm concerned, bootstrapping is like, I've got to turn on all my dependencies. Those start before my application starts. I've got to like start kernel. If I'm using distributed Erlang, like I have to configure that when that comes up. So that's like part of the bootstrapping process. And that's a whole different set of config issues. And then you have the final thing, which is, you know, your application configuration. Um, like 
being able to configure your application at runtime. And that's sort of the easiest one to solve in a lot of ways because it's your application. You can do whatever you want in your app start and be able to start pulling in values. And, you know, uh, you can make a call to Vault and choose to like shut your app down or keep running or whatever uh, based on the response that you get back from Vault. So uh, having broken those things into the different tiers, you know, to me, I think the hardest one to solve right now is the second one. It's the bootstrapping problem. If you have to configure dependent applications, like, you know, what's your take? Like, what's the right way to be able to to start like working on solving that bootstrapping problem? Mm, I'm I'm not really sure, right? So like one idea I had at some point is that maybe you could have not a unified config, right? Script that you'd run, but maybe say something, run this config before this application boots. And it requires that and that application to run it. Right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, you could have, I don't know, like the etcd application started before the Ecto application and run some config there, right, for it. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there's a good solution for it. And interestingly, you mentioned kernel which is like even worse because it has to be configured by the time the VM boots. So right. you can do anything dynamic there. And I talked with uh, Ingela uh, at the conference. So she's uh, the one working on the SSL module and, so, and also the TLS distribution. And they also have a similar problem is that the kernel starts the distribution, but the distribution with the TLS layer, so the secure distribution is in the SSL application but when kernel boots, the SSL application is not booted yet. <laughs> right, so, so, so you have same things. Uh, I said that maybe not same, but like similar problems, right? With like mm -hmm. and how you go about doing that, it's hard. How much of that do you think is, I don't know, uh, it's just the legacy of, of how Erlang uses applications? I mean, it seems like there's a real, I mean, you, you wrote a really good blog post about uh, config. And I mean, it was a little while ago now, but I think it's, it's really, really relevant um, even still. And you talked about uh, the different ways in which, you know, library authors could manage config. And I think you, you'd pointed out, you know, you can use, you can provide a behavior that then the user can start in their application. Um, and and one of the things you talked about in there was applications. Like if you're if you're supplying an application, this is the worst possible. You know, it's, I don't think you use these words. I'm I'm using these words, but it's the uh, this is the hardest way to configure this, right? Like if you use an application, it's it's the least flexible. It's the it's the hardest to actually configure. How much of that is legacy of of Erlang um, and to that point too like is that a thing that we should be as a as a community is that a thing that we're we should be trying to find new patterns for or move away from or, or those sorts of things i'm asking you a lot of very pointed questions yes yeah but, so my quick response is that i agree with you <laughs> but it's a lot coming from from erlang and like longer response is that so the reason why you have those libraries as running as applications is because it's easier, right? Mm -hmm. Because you get your global process and like name it with an atom and it just works, right? And it's easy to do. And 
designing it so that you can start multiple instances of the thing, right? It's, it's much harder. And, and it's not, I, I don't think it's that you don't know how to do it, right? Because mm -hmm. you just design your processes around the idea that you can start multiple of them, but right? they are not simultons. Uh, and it's, it's not very difficult. It just takes slightly more work to do. And also you don't think about the fact that maybe you'll need more of them than one. Right. And applications, I mean, and doing things inside of, inside of applications often, it gets tricky, right? Because if you have multiple libraries that all want to depend on that single application, it works fine when you have one of those. Like if you like, uh, let me explain this uh, correctly. If you have dependent application C and you have libraries that you specifically depend on A and B, but they both depend on C for their configuration. Well, now C is global because it's just an app. And now you can have collisions like you can. It's like it's trickier to figure out how they actually collaborate together and work together. And, you know, yeah. that's that's hard to deal with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that wasn't really a question. Yeah, that it was is more hard. Just me just more just me making a statement. <laughs> You killed it, Chris. I know. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's sorry. I, I'm just sitting here taking notes. I have like two pages of notes, so I'm not saying much today because I'm just writing all these things down that I need to go look up. <laughs> so I wanted to um, address one of the more like, uh, I don't want to say like controversial because I, I think I fully understand where, where y'all are coming from and trying to and the and, you know, the problem that y'all are trying to address. You know, right now, it seems like the, the conversations just because there's so many other kind of competing things going on. Like I know that forum thread kind of got closed as we need to, we need to regroup and try to think through this again. One of the main um, uh, uh, solutions proposed in that was sort of that on boot section of the mix config. Um, and I have mixed, <laughs> mixed feelings about that. Uh, <laughs> no you should have seen his face when I brought that up in the last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what are your, I'd like to, I'd love to chat with you about that. Um, now that we're, we, we have more than 140 characters. <laughs> uh, I talked with Jose yesterday about it. And so the thing is, so we want to integrate releases, right? With, uh, with Elixir. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the goal. And also why we started addressing this config problem, right? Because mm -hmm. if you want to have releases in the mix, we want to have it like all the way through. Right? Mm -hmm. Not working sometimes, but just working. And it's not really clear now how they are going to work, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe this will be, it will be implemented in a way that whenever you do mix run, it actually runs a release, right? That's also a possibility we, we're considering, right? And so if that will be the case, right, you need a completely different design for config than if you do something else. And also that's, that's a reason why this discussion was shelved in a way, right? Mm. Let's maybe solve the, the releases problem first and see what constraints this imposes on the config solutions mm -hmm. to look at. I think that makes a ton of sense to, to approach it from that perspective. I have no idea what the implications of, or, or level of effort that this would require. But I, I think the idea of running, of always doing mixed run and having that run a release is a really, really, even, uh, let me back up and say, I, even if that is not 
what we normally think of as a release, right? You know, even if it's like different than what we would call a release today, if it's a release, like meaning like a, an executable ish kind of thing, um, that seems like a really, really good place to be. That seems like a real good win. So yeah, interestingly, I talked yesterday with a guy from WhatsApp. Uh, he had a presentation today. I forgot his name. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but this was, we also touched a little bit on it. Uh, but the way they use Erlang is very, very different uh, from like the OTP way, right? They do like hot code loaning modules basically everywhere all the time and like doing things in the shell all the time. And yeah, they don't run releases, right? They basically start a shell, compile modules in the shell, load modules dynamically and start them, right? And then th at least that's what I understood, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, and, and if, we should, uh, if we should use OTP releases or maybe some other form of releases, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's also an open question. But I think what we would like to have is like build your application as a single thing that is compiled and you place it on your server and you run it. Right. Uh, so I think that's, that, like, that's the goal to, to have a feature like that. Uh, but so far, like OTP releases are probably the best candidate. Right. So we're unclear solutions, like clear alternatives to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's easily the most used, the most battle tested, you know, like, I mean, it seems like anyway, I'm, uh, that trying to come up with a new thing and just, you know, say, well, we're going to invent our own releases. I mean, the Elixir community, you, I know you've had firsthand experience with this already gets accused of reinventing the wheel a lot. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. Someone said that to me today, I think. Yeah. yeah. I heard, I heard that today a couple of times as well. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's uh yeah there's a lot of that going around of just you know oh these elixir these elixir upstarts are oh they they're ignoring all the good work we've done in Erlang and we're and we're throwing and they're just doing it all themselves. But even releases in Erlang, right? The the way that Relix does it, so the Relix would be the the tool that's I think most popular and the like the base for. It was the base for uh, the predecessor of distillery. So it was, how was it called? XRM, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And it's also a base for design of distillery. But before that, there were many other tools in Erlang for building releases, right? Uh, it was like, even OTP has two tools to build releases, right? There's rel tool and sys and they both kind of build releases, right? One goes <laughs> on top of another. And yeah, there were other tools in, in Erlang. So, yeah, I don't think it's like a closed question. It's, it's a very hard problem, basically. I think, and I mean, I think as much as we try to rely on the stuff that's out there for Erlang, um, I, I actually do think the Elixir community does a really good job of that, typically. I do think sometimes, you know, we have to, it's sometimes good to step back and reevaluate the problem and just say like, is this actually working for us? Does this actually do the thing that we need it to do? Or are we just shoehorning it in there because it's been built and like, it's, it's easier to reuse somebody's, somebody's effort. Um, and that might be the case here. I mean, it might be the case that 
we just need to rethink the entire way that, you know, just kind of a top down approach uh, of how to do releases overall. I don't know. And I, again, I don't even know the level of effort that it would take to do that. I'm basically, you know, sitting here signing up Paul and whoever else. <laughs> a bunch of work. <laughs> I'm, as I said before, like so, so, so far, OTP releases and like the, the relics way and the distillery, distillery way consequence seems to be like the best solutions. Mm -hmm. right? But even with, for example, with hot loading, so one idea I could have, and we're saying like don't do hot loading because it's complex and things like that. Uh, and but what if, for example, we by default generated releases with upgrades that just restarted all the applications, right? And then you don't have all the problems with like how the upgrade processes. You have to write all that code, right? And you still get this idea of, of upgrades maybe mm. in some limited way right mm -hmm. uh, but it's much simpler and it, it works right uh, so there's a lot of nuance there and a lot of solutions that could be made yeah right? and trade-offs do you have a sense of um of how many people in elixir are actually using hot code for upgrades because uh, that's a good question. it seems like the the constant refrain from almost everyone is they're a lot of work, you know, they're they're complicated, don't do them, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like that's the that's the thing I hear most uh from from folks. So I wonder if we've turned off a lot of people from from that. And, um, and they're not they're not that difficult. And I'm not I making mean, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying that that's what you hear. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Definitely yeah, hear that I, paradigm quite a bit. I wanted to do it so bad that I purposely went out and did it after hearing everybody say how bad it was. And I thought, this is not really that I, Unless you're like, have to change a whole supervision tree. If you're just changing a process, it's really not hard. You, you, you get some state in, you transmute, you mutate the state, just like every other function, and you return a state back out. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> and especially if you just change like some pure functional modules, right? Then you don't need to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. right. Like, just works. Uh, I think I think a lot of the the fear of upgrades, I think, is also inherited from the airline community, where they use records for the state of a process, and mm -hmm. upgrading from like old version of a record to a new version of a record is like so so hard and error prone just like records are just compile time and you can have just one definition with a name then to manually unpack and repack the tuples and it's very easy to get it wrong and that's that's my understanding one of the reasons that's really interesting so that is it, really interesting this 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 idiom might make no sense <clears throat> but in the but down here in the south we always have a joke about like that's that's why mom cut the end off the roast <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever heard this? Well, no, yeah. No. This, so this, the story, yeah. So this is a southeast. This is some homespun southeastern wisdom right here. <laughs> Dan so, dandelion so, greens and and black eyed. No, peas. so so the story mom goes, it's like mom. Every time right. mom makes a roast, she cuts the ends off of it, and so you're like, why do you do that, mom? And then and then she's like, I don't know. That's what my mom always did. And you're like, Grandma, why did you always cut the ends off the roast? And she's like, I don't know. That's what my mom always did. And then you're like, hey, great grandma, why did you cut the ends off the roast and shit? Oh, because it, it wouldn't fit in the pan otherwise. <laughs> well, I, I think there was a related, like, like social, like, 
psychological experiments. I think it was with monkeys that they was, I, I have no idea if I remember this correctly, but it was something like there was a ladder with like some food on top and they would sprinkle monkeys with water if they tried to climb the ladder. And so basically, whenever one of them tried to climb, the other would take it down, right? Because they were afraid of the water. And after some time they stopped and they were changing the monkeys in the room constantly, right? And after some time they switched off the water uh, and they weren't sprinkling, sprinkling them with it. But whenever one monkey tried to climb the ladder, the other one would pull, pull it back, right? From it. And even at the point where no monkey was the same that the initial ones, <laughs> the water, they were still doing it, right? And they had no idea why, basically, right? So like that's that's the same story, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, all the monkeys were cutting the ends off the roast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, but I also wonder to to what degree. I mean, this is tough because it's such like a hacker news sort of way of looking at the world. But it, you know, I wonder to, to the degree that that Elixir companies are are you know if they're using docker and they're deploying to kubernetes or whatever yeah you know how much they can actually take advantage or are ever going to take advantage of of upgrades i mean and i've heard that before right everyone as soon as you start talking about reloads and then someone says docker um mm. and deploying kubernetes and then it gets hard but i mean i think you choose which i mean it's sometimes you can't use i mean maybe at some point right but you also choose which tools of a particular tool set fit best right mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to make trade-offs but it's I but I have to imagine it's one of those things where it adds a you know having to handle upgrades as part of the release uh you know a package yeah. or procedure it it adds a lot of complexity to I I assume you know it would add a lot of complexity to to the release tooling that's out there as opposed to building something that's the equivalent of an e-script right like if you could package your whole application as as something equivalent to like an e-script and just like not care about about how the upgrade process works or something like that um, and that was the entirety of the release tooling, then that like simplifies the workflow. Um, but but because you have to handle the case where someone might be using upgrades, it adds that level of complexity. Yeah, that's um, a good point. I I use upgrades for a web app that that's running Elixir and Phoenix, but uh, You're such a hipster. It, it, well, most of my stuff is nerves, so it it doesn't matter. <laughs> but but the one Phoenix app that I have going, I'm I deploy to a DigitalOcean droplet with distillery, and I do I do upgrades from day one. I said I w I want to be able to do hot code reloads, so I'm gonna do it this way. Um, and and that was more just to go against everybody saying that they were hard. It's like I'm gonna find out. <laughs> standard and it's iconoclastic <laughs> it's it's not been that bad though i don't know the whole, whole i i got away from from docker and heroku right away because i wanted to be able to do this so i would like to make sure that the tooling still supports that and maybe see some more people in the community starting to try out hot code stuff i know that was always the pipe dream and when I was doing Java and any other Ruby web development project stuff was, hey, how can we minimize our downtime? And is there a way that we can, we can upgrade with no downtime? I think another problem with upgrades, uh, something I thought when you were talking about it, uh, is what to do when you're upgrading your dependencies. 
mm -hmm. right? because most applications that are like packages, like uh, packages on non hex, uh, don't publish app ups and don't handle like uh, code upgrade callbacks in, in their modules, right? So it's it's another problem. So now you had a bug in in like one of your dependencies or even security issue, right? Mm -hmm. and you want to upgrade it but it's not prepared to be upgraded right and now you need to restart your system anyway right so yeah if you have to be prepared to do like complete restarts anyway uh, then there's a question like does it make sense to to go with, with upgrades it's like yeah it, it's trade-offs right obviously like everything yeah but this is like another component to consider and that most libraries when they are published they don't include upgrade instructions i think the only thing that does is like the applications that are part of OTP. well and this and to tie this back into like our configuration discussion if if you do support uh upgrades how does that play with potentially running mixed config again or you know what i mean like to running the on boot section again like are you gonna have to you know, how does that all going to work out? Yeah, and like, how do you enforce if like a process started and it read some config in, in it, right? How do you enforce it and reread it after you upgrade the config? Right. That's like, yet, right, another, right, right, yet right. another problem, right? Well, so this is why to me, um, potentially coming at the problem from a different direction of maybe saying like, well, this, this gets to why I, I, I created that, that project um, called Vapor, right? Which is aptly named because there's zero code. But it's like, how do you attack? I'm thinking about like ways we might be able to to come at the problem from sort of a different direction. Um, assuming that you can bootstrap the the app, you know, then then maybe the right way to do it is to just have a process that you control that you can do upgrades on if you want to that can handle like you know code change or whatever you need to you need to do. Uh, and this gets kind of back. This this is where I I feel like we we might start to add a lot of complexity to mix config. If we start to say like it's going to handle all these cases or it's not or you know you have you're gonna have, the semantics for that are going to have to be pretty well defined for people or it's still just going to be surprising you know yeah i agree with it uh, so i think like for the first version of the releases in mix the plan is not to handle upgrades mm -hmm. uh, i mean even without upgrades for example if you use vault right and reading something from vault the way the reason why you use vault is that you can rotate the configs right so like what happens when you rotate them? Mm -hmm. uh, you have, for example, an Ecto repo that you started with a database URL that you took out from Vault, right? And how do you change that? Right? One is mm -hmm. changes the value in Vault. Those are still like questions that are not answered. And I don't think like the config discussion would answer them. Right. It's like... Well, that, I mean, right, because it's, it's too big. It's too big for... Too the, big. It's too big for, for the core team or for for mixed config or whatever, you know, to be able to handle all of the use cases that people will want to try to use it for at that point. Because I mean, yeah, exactly to your point, like maybe I want to listen to vault and maybe sometimes I can talk to vault and sometimes I can't. And how do I handle those errors? Like when's it a hard stop and when's it not? Um, what do I do once I get a new config? It feels like that's a lot of app code. You know what I mean? It feels like that's going to be very dependent on your application to me. I'm not sure there's a universal set of conventions we could we could stipulate for people for that for like real complex use cases like that. 
I think a, a lot of what we talk about with config and the problems that, that we discussed last episode and on Twitter and in the forum and every <laughs> other place. And everywhere else. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is an education issue and, and, and maybe an experience issue that we need to, we need to figure out how we want it to be done and then how to spread that education. Cause I don't think that a lot of the things that we talk about are going to be solved with technology. They're going to be solved with an approach to using I technology. Agree. I think this comes a little back to the blog post you mentioned, mm-hmm. Chris, in the beginning. I'm saying like recommending building those components you can start in your own supervision tree instead of having full applications as dependencies because then you'll have more control as a user right? uh, and you can choose to maybe restart the, the process uh, after the config in the vault changed right uh, but then basically you are in control right? uh, I think that's like what the libraries should like strive for is to have a design that places the user of the library in control and not the library itself right? imposing some solutions. And I, I think that's where compile time config really, really hurts you because you, you can't you, you can't have a choice as the user at that point. If it's a runtime config, there are ways that I can build my own compile time config into that if I want to and just always pass the same thing. But if it's a compile time config, getting it to act as runtime is really difficult. I mean, you could conceivably do it at compile time, but it means recompiling modules like on the box. Like, you know, you you mean, you mean hot code upgrades, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, what? <laughs> Didn't we talk about that? Uh, so, Maybe. with recompiling the modules, so just I recently changed how the MIME library works, right? Because mm-hmm. it's another example of a compile time config uh, that you configure like the extra MIME type that you should handle. Right? There's a, I think there's a pull request or a commit we could link to, uh, and uh, the way it does it, it records what were the options at compile time. And when if it boots with different options that were those, uh, it will print a warning and recompile the module with the new options. Right. Uh, oh, so printing the warning is like I think we all could agree on, right? It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, the recompiling, I think it's a good feature, right? But yeah. Yeah, I mean, some people I mean, are definitely. At least have, having the warning is like a great thing to have, right? That yeah. As you like, hey, please recompile this because you changed things we read at, at compile time. And it's it's a it's a nice low hanging fruit, probably mm-hmm. easy to implement, put in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that, I started fantasizing about the solution that would do this <laughs> automatically, right? Basically, whenever you read some configuration at compile time. And then you start your application with that config changed that maybe you should issue a warning or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's very hard to do automatically, especially yeah. because when you have like a keyword or like a complex data structure as the op- option and like you use, you read everything at compile time, but you use just parts of it, right? And how do you record those? Like, yeah. 
you're gonna have so many false or false negatives from from doing it like that. Probably <clears throat> if you if you had like let's say you had something like Ecto, like there's so many or 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 the Phoenix endpoint, like there's so many things that go into that that you know you don't. It's so hard to know what you're actually using and versus what you're not. Well, I know y'all have to to go soon. It sounds like um, there's a party, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I heard. Was well, there anything? Um, is there anything else that y'all wanted to, to 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 throw out there before before we have to sign off? I think it's good we're having those discussions, right, in in the community, and even though like they became very heated yeah, at some points, right, in, in different mediums they were. <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I still think it's it's a good thing that we're having those discussions uh, and learning about different perspectives on, on things. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think we should, we should stop with it, right? But remember, there's always people on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> that became very cheesy. Yeah. No, but it's uh, true, no, it's, right? I think it's, it's, it's totally it's, true. It's, I, I, didn't, um, I didn't feel that it was too heated in the discussion, but, but maybe I wasn't one of the people that got all uh, <laughs> every well, time maybe I, you weren't I receiving somebody, the brunt of the the opinions that, that, that's probably true too i i also more was in a reading a lot less talking i did a little bit of talking on twitter but um i i i don't know i always just try to take a step back and say well why would they want it that way what is going on in their development that that makes that solution right for them and and i think that that we should mm -hmm. all do that once in a while, whenever we especially are are getting fired up, Chris. <laughs> I wasn't even that fired up. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, wait a minute. Pump the brakes. I just, I just, I, I didn't even I, say. I anything. don't think that's fair. I didn't even say no, anything was, on that forum thread because by the time I no, got no, to no, it, it was over. Like it was already, it was already done. <laughs> no, I think you know. I think healthy discussion is good, but maintaining perspective so that it stays healthy, right, rather than somebody really trying to prove a point about their right. perspective yeah. um, Absolutely. without keeping the entire picture in mind. Well, Michal, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the call with us and, and chatting with us about stuff. This was super fun. Yeah. Thank yeah, you for having awesome. me. I, I enjoyed uh, this as well. And, and now official friend of the show. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. That's, that's great. <laughs> Chris, Chris said he's well. buying everybody uh, a hoodie who's a friend of the show. That's right, Chris, isn't that what you said? Hoodies? Yeah, maybe t-shirts. I don't know. I, if it, <laughs> we don't have that many friends of the show yet, so like maybe we can spring for hoodies. We can yeah. spring for hoodies, maybe. Yeah. All right, y'all. Right, yeah. Well, thanks. You guys enjoy your party. Uh, and, enjoy the rest uh, of the thank conference. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.